Hi, I'm your host, Tina Clark, and welcome to My Weirdest Experience Podcast. This is the podcast of the weirdest experience that has ever happened to you and gives you a venue to fully express yourself and share your weirdest story with the world. This is the No Judgment Zone, a safe place to share your experience. It's also a place where we discuss what happened to you and share some possible theories on what and why this happened. If you would like to be on the show, email me at contactstargazingangel at gmail.com. Hi, welcome to the show. This is your host, Tina Clark, and today I have Nicholas Pearson here with me. He is an author and crystal expert and a Reiki teacher. He has published six books so far. He has another book coming out next year, and he's about to finish his eighth book. Today, Nicholas is going to talk to us about crystal skulls, which is one of my favorite topics. So welcome to the show, Nicholas. Thank you so much, Tina, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. So a little background on how I know Nicholas. Um, I have been following him since he was on another podcast, and he did talk about one of his crystal books then. And then I found him on Facebook, and I friended him, and friend requested him, and he accepted. So here we are, fast forward to 2021. (laughs) (laughs) So tell us about your background in crystals. I'm kind of curious on how you get your information for your books. Are you meditating or channeling or what's your process? So, uh, you know, I started working with crystals pretty young. I was that kid who picked up rocks everywhere I went. So whether it was a pebble on the seashore or a trip to the mountains and I found some white quartz or like a gravel driveway or parking lot, I was an equal opportunity rock hound. All rock was important to me. Uh, And my grandfather clearly had to have seen this pattern. He gave me my very first piece of quartz, which is packed away in a special place these days. And it was from Hot Springs, Arkansas. I didn't know that at the time, but many decades later, I, I can I can see um, I, exactly where it came from. That suddenly transformed stone from this inert part of the environment to something luminous, something with these rigid and regular angles and faces, something that transformed light as, as light moved through it. I was hooked. So um, here we are almost 30 years later, and I'm still collecting. I'm still learning. I'm still driving that whole process. Um, Around the same age, I had this really great fondness for spirituality and world religion and mythology and folklore and fairy tale. But at the same time, I've always been kind of a science nerd. And at at an early age, I was able to recognize how science and spirit were kind of describing the same phenomena in the world, but through uh, different metaphors, through different lenses. And so I've always kind of been interested in how a natural phenomenon really takes place, how we can explain it with science, but how it has accrued meaning and value and symbolism to people all around the planet. I eventually kind of hyper-focused on rocks as my, my specialty in that. And I, I read everything I could get my hands on. And when you're in middle school or high school, that's not a lot, especially in a pre-internet era or in an early internet era. 
So, you know, trips to the library and the local bookstores actually landed a bunch of crystal healing books in my hands because there wasn't a heck of a lot of other stuff written about crystals from that kind of woo-woo lens at the time. And I, I read whatever I could. I read the classics like Katrina Raphael and Jane Ann Dow and, um, you know, Scott Cunningham and other works that were really seminal for their era. This was before, you know, Judy Hall and, uh, you know, all the writers who really rose to the fore in the late 90s and early 2000s. So I, I did not have a heck of a lot to choose from. At the same time, I was engaged in some really rigorous academic work, um, you know, spending every day cultivating that. And eventually I, I settled on my trajectory for school, which was going to be music. And I went to a school with a fantastic music program. And part of my uh, tuition reimbursement was through the federal work study program. And they assigned me to work, you know, at random. So they say, and it was this place called the Gillespie Museum. And I was kind of late in enrolling at my university. So I figured they put me in the uh, arts space, the visual arts, because all the auditory arts and the music program had been filled up and um, I had no real interest in in being a docent in an art museum, but eventually it occurred to me they would pay me if I showed up. Um, and my inner Capricorn is like, this is a brilliant idea. I should do this. <laughs> and so I finally ask an upperclassman, where is this Gillespie Museum? And I mean, his jaw drops and he looks at me funny. He's like, the Gillespie, why on earth would you want to go to the Rock Museum? And I'm I'm just like dumbfounded. We have a what? Where, where is this place? Tell me all about it. <laughs> so um, I, I march on down and it was closed after rehearsal, but I, I, I went home. I write, wrote a polite little note saying, if you'll still have me, I want to work. Desperately, I want to work. And um, I got a, a crash course in mineral science, hands-on working in a museum setting. I came in with a lot of scientific appreciation and knowledge of minerals, but this gave me a chance to really dive in deep. So, so deep, in fact, that I eventually changed my major away from music to science. And although I never finished that degree, that's, that's a whole other weird experience for a, a different <laughs> time, I suppose. Um, it's always really stuck with me. And at that time that I was really enmeshed in learning about the composition, the formation process, the structure of minerals, I started to see patterns. I noticed that you could pick up two books written by people who published their works in different language, on different continents, in different centuries. And they might have similar spiritual experiences with rocks and minerals that had similar compositions or belonged to the same crystal system or were formed by the same events, geologically speaking. And so I started to kind of map those things out. At the same time, I was doing a lot of meditative work on my own and really trying to still my own mind so the voice of a, a particular rock or mineral could come through and I could kind of, uh, we'll say, gather my own experiences, my own data. And, um, you know, it was a really magical and innocent and somewhat naive time in my life. And then, you know, we, we, I went the way of, of all grownups and I had to enter the workforce and do that whole thing. But um, I, I eventually realized that rocks were always going to be my great love. So I, I took a big leap of faith and left a corporate job and started writing my first book. And here we are several books later. So I, I would say that my my current writing is definitely very researched. I, I have several hundred books on crystals in my library. Those are just the ones I've kept over the years. There are many more that kind of filtered in and out. I have my own personal experiences, uh, some, some training from uh, friends, mentors, colleagues, teachers in the field, and then a heck of a lot of experiences I've, we'll say, um, compiled 
from students and clients and friends. And so when I write, I kind of write from all these places at once. I certainly have my own subjective spiritual experience, but I have to remember that is relative to me. So what is the bigger picture? How can we zoom out and see where that connects to other stuff? And that's why I always kind of anchor what I'm doing in in the sciences, because those are things we can measure. And spiritual experience is something we can't always measure, at least not quantitatively. And that's perfectly okay. I'm I'm not mad about that. I'm not mad that science hasn't caught up and can't measure subtle energy yet. Um, it's, it's just that it's too subtle. Um, but uh, it's, it's been a really exciting journey. It's so taking me. Yeah, that's amazing that you were assigned a job at a crystal museum. I mean, did they ask you what you were interested in or they just <clears throat> randomly assigned you a job? They just randomly assigned me a job. I mean, I this is one of those cases where I really don't believe there are accidents. Right. Um, I, I, I just I I didn't even know such a place existed on campus. So um, it was just by virtue of the fact that I came into the school very late that they stuck me in the place no one else wanted to be. And um, you know, it's a pity for everyone else because I really loved it. And you know, they gave me almost unrestricted access to the collection within just a few short weeks, which is something that they don't typically do for student staff. I led school groups. Um, I helped do research. I was managing the collection. They actually invented a role for me as preparator of the rock and mineral collection. So um, I got to you know grade things, decide what was going on display, figure out how we could you know revamp. Uh, our, our tours and everything based around what was historic and what had scientific value and you know, what was just cool. So uh, it, was, it was a really exciting time for me. And those, those years are probably some of my most formative in my rock and mineral years. And That's amazing. I, I carry those experiences with me today. I love that your grandfather gave you your first crystal too. Um, no one was giving me crystals as a kid. But then again, I was, I was in New York City. So... <laughs> my love for crystals came later in life um but tell us about your crystal skull experiences yeah so you know when i was a senior in high school um i stumbled across a book called um, mysteries of the crystal skulls and it was the only book i'd seen on the subject and it certainly wasn't my main area of focus but i figured you know it's related to crystals i'm gonna read this and I read all about the Mitchell Hedges skull and Max and uh, skulls in the museums of the Smithsonian and the um, Paris Museum of, Museum of Mankind uh, and the British Museum skull and uh, you know, all sorts of other things. And it was really fascinating to me. And I thought, you know, I deserve a crystal skull. So I'm going to get one crystal skull and we'll call it a day. And, you know, my experience is it's really hard to have one crystal skull. <laughs> so, um the the weirdness started just about immediately you know i i went to my first rock and mineral show ever uh just out of high school my local metaphysical store had become kind of like my second home and so the owner of the shop invited me to go with her on a buying trip to a wholesale show and we went to one of her favorite vendors and they just had flats and flats of of small medium, large jumbo crystal skulls. And I was, I was like, oh gosh, I have to have one. I just have to. So um, there's just this one that I'm, I'm so enchanted with, perfectly clear. I, I'm like reaching into the box to pull them out. And 
magnetically. Like I'm, I'm not even controlling it. My hand is drawn to another one with all these imperfections. Like, oh, well, I, I didn't love this one. And I, I, I pick it up and turn it in the light. And there's this beautiful crystal point embedded in the back of his skull. And it's just um, absolutely so astonishing to see this crystal within a crystal carved into the shape of a skull. And uh, it, was, it was love at first sight. Even though it was not the one I thought I was going to take home, I did. And he came with me to a couple of workshops. At that time, I just started teaching classes on crystals. And I, I was teaching a class on Lemurian seed crystals. And there's a lot of, uh, we'll say, modern metaphysical myth about uh, the crystal skulls in Atlantis and Lemuria. And so I, I kind of took him along as just sort of a novelty. And after class, someone says to me, hey, I, I want to introduce you to my friend. Uh, she works with crystal skulls and she got a message from your skull. I'm like, sure she did. <laughs> and, and so she's like, can I see your crystal skull? And I, I place it in her hand. It's just a little handheld guy, you know, maybe yay big. And um, she starts channeling his name and saying, well, you know, I, I do work with Max, the crystal skull every single year. I'm like, oh, I know Max. I read a book. He's in there. Okay, great. Keep talking. And she gives me his name and spells it for me. And, um, that's that. And uh, a few weeks later, I'm teaching the same class in another county, a little farther away from home. And I get to the point where I'm going to pass around my crystal skull. And he's been in my pocket. I'm like super enchanted with the little guy um, for reasons I just can't put, quite put my finger on it. I'm in a room full of strangers. I've never taught at this shop before. And I, I pull out the little skull and the gentleman immediately to my left, under his breath, mutters the word, Max, like almost losing my place okay, here's, here's another complete stranger connecting this little skull to Max. So after class, he comes up to me and he goes, um, Nicholas, I was, I was wondering if I could see your crystal skull. You want to see my crystal skull? Sure, go for it. <laughs> and he, he channels a name for it that is almost identical to the first one, um, spells it differently. And I'm like, this is weird. How, how is it possible that two people unknown to one another could have the same subjective experience with this little skull? Um, so that, that was the beginning. And as I was in college, I, I started to get other smaller skulls. And I remember the day I finally got my 13th one. Um, I, I finally had enough to kind of recreate this grid of a circle of 12 skulls around a central one. And, uh, it was, it was always a joke that like, I was the weird roommate in college. And shortly thereafter, I, I was the one who talked to rocks. But when I started collecting crystal skulls in mass, I talked to rocks who looked like they could talk back was the joke in the house. Mm -hmm. So uh, one of my roommates steps into um, the den where uh, we had a one room in the house. We were like total bachelor pad with no furniture in it. So um, uh, the roommate takes one step into this room where the grid is doesn't even look down to see that there's a crystal grid, um, but is like taken aback, steps out of the room and walks away. So I go back and like, so what was up with it? It's like, there was a strange energy in that room. I'm, I don't, I don't know what you're doing in there, but that was, that was different. I'm like, oh, well, I finally put together my grid of crystal skulls. So um, it, there's just something about the, the energy of a crystal when carved into human form that transforms and translates its energy into something unique and different. It's like the intersection between the human kingdom and the mineral kingdom made manifest in a really tangible way. And as a result, they, they 
for many people, they tend to have really big personalities. It's almost as if they're a lot chattier than crystals without faces. They have this ability to link with the human mind in a very unique way. And while I'm sure a lot of that is, is our own projection because we can relate to the mineral kingdom even better when it's in our shape, there's, there's this great synergy that's created when we, when we spend time with them. And the more of them we put together, it's like the bigger and bigger that field of energy gets and it can be overwhelming. So skulls have been a fascinating part of my journey. Sometimes they've been a really deep focus and sometimes they've been more diffuse or in the background, but I, I love them. So did anything special happen after you got your 13th crystal skull? Um, I would say probably the specialist thing that happened is that I kept buying more and more <laughs> and more. Um, the, the, the really, I'd say pivotal point was um, maybe a couple of years later, um, I had a friend in Japan uh, at this point in my life and they knew that I had this great love for crystal skulls. And, you know, here's the thing about being passionate about something it tends to be infectious so you get other people excited mm -hmm. about it too and mm -hmm. they'd started a collection of of skulls as well just before moving to japan but i get this phone call in what amounts to like the wee hours of the morning because japan is so far ahead of of uh the u.s in terms of time zones and i my friend is just like ranting and raving or something is really, really excited. And I'm not awake yet. I mean, I'm answering a phone call from Japan and that's about all I know. And then I hear the magic words, crystal skull. I'm like, can you back up? Tell me the whole story from the beginning. I'm paying attention mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. Instantly I'm awake. And um, so my friend recounts the story of visiting this little market in Ueno Park, which is kind of like the central park of Tokyo, if you will. And um, there's a gentleman from... Uh, Nepal, who's got a bunch of Himalayan antiques and antiquities and other fun things. And among them in this glass case is a nearly life-sized quartz crystal skull carved from Himalayan quartz um, that the, the seller thinks is old, but doesn't really know, you know how old or what the age is. So um, long story short, my friend eventually haggles down a price and helps me acquire the skull who is sitting with me today. So um, he comes from the province of Nepal called Mustang, which is sometimes called the Tibet outside of Tibet. Uh, it, it borders, the kingdom of, of Mustang borders um, uh, Tibet itself. And so after the occupation of China in the 1950s onward, uh, a lot of Tibetan refugees just fled across the border that way. Mustang is really difficult to access. It is very remote. It's hard to be approved for a visa. They're often very exclusive, very expensive and very short lived. So uh, there aren't a lot of Westerners who've, who've been there. And it is this storehouse of Himalayan wisdom, art, architecture, um, artifacts, and, and culture and language. So while, while I don't definitively know how old this rock I'm holding is, how old this skull is, um, my, uh, a colleague of mine who's a soil geologist looked at it up close and she specializes in Mesoamerican artifacts as like a hobby of hers, but she looks at things like mineral intrusion. She goes, well, here's my official answer. He's old. <laughs> that's, that's all you can really do to date that. And intuitive sources have given me all sorts of different ages from a few hundred to over a thousand. But, you know, at the end of the day, even if he was carved 12 years ago, uh, the rock itself that it's carved from this beautiful piece of quartz is timeless, is ancient, right. mm -hmm. has been in the Himalayas and seen a heck of a lot. And so therefore, the raw material 
has this energy to it, has this storehouse of wisdom from that part of the world anyway. And when we carve a crystal into the shape of a skull, it's like, you know, taking a device and connecting it to the internet. It, it's not just suddenly only the information on that device, but it has access to everything the internet has to offer. So when we carve a single crystal into the shape of a crystal skull, it's part of this wireless network of other skulls that uh, can, can, you know, share and stream and download and and upload what they've got. So a lot of people, even with recently made skulls, will have these incredible spiritual experiences of seeing other times and places and events and being able to access and retrieve wisdom that might not necessarily just be stored in that one piece of stone, but in in the complete network, the collective consciousness of the crystal skulls. That is an amazing skull. Um, For our listeners, they won't be able to see it, but maybe if you want to, you can share a picture of it and I can post it on the totally. notes. Yeah, but it looks a little ape-like, don't you think? With the yeah, protruding well, jaw. Yeah, it does. It does have what we call prognathism. The jaw is forward. Um, a lot of skulls in modern and ancient and everything in between are highly stylized. Um, you know, here is a modern carving from the Himalayas, you see that same sort of jaw forward approach. Mm -hmm. Um, Over the years, I've been lucky enough to add lots of other skulls to the family, including a couple of these skulls that are, um, were brought out of uh, Mongolia by uh, a gentleman by the name of Frank Liu. Um, And these are mostly carved from calcite, some from fossilized tabulate coral and petrified wood and, and other things. Um, but I've got two of these smaller ones. Most of them were fairly large, but they've got these very, very large eye sockets, these kind of weird protuberances on the brow. Um, Missing look very simian as well. They, They don't look quite human. But what I love about them is when most of the skulls from, from this collection, when sitting down, on their flat bases, they're, they're really staring up into the stars as if they're trying to connect with someplace that's not here. And yeah. a friend of mine who studied uh, zoology and primatology points out that they don't have the right teeth and jaws to be um, a different kind of primate. They are very hominid except for their eyes. And she says in, in all of her um, scientific politeness that um, they don't look like something from Earth. Yeah, they don't. <laughs> so, um, and these are these are again, you know, no one really knows how old they are, but they're they're very strange and, and weird artifacts. And what kind of crystal are they made of? Carved out of? These two are um, these two are carved from golden calcite, and there are okay. others from this we'll say collection of skulls that came out of this region of the world um, that were made out of fossilized coral and petrified wood um, among other materials. So they're, they're pretty fascinating. I've gotten to handle, you know, maybe half a dozen or more of these Mongolian skulls and they pair. They're, they're kind of eerie from far away, but when you get your hands on them or when you get into their presence, there's something kind of whimsical and joyful about them. Yeah. It would be amazing to even hold them. Um, I've done a lot of research on the Mitchell Hedges skull and just 
interested in the story because for the listeners, if you don't know, this is the inspiration for the Crystal Skull and one of the Indiana Jones movies. But um, have you looked into their story about how they found the skull, how the, his daughter, Mitchell Hedges' daughter, found it? Yeah, and there, I know there's a lot of controversy around the actual provenance of the skull. Um, I am of the camp that says if we look at if we look at the scanning electron microscopy that's been done more than once, if we look at the, the inconsistencies in the story, I don't believe the Mitchell Hedges skull is necessarily ancient. Um, I think it was made by some sort of divine intervention because even, even knowing what we know about crystals and optics today, it is hard to reproduce the optical effects in that skull uh, with the most sophisticated of equipment. It, the, the kind of... Um, the kind of tool mark analysis that's been done shows that um, lapidary tools consistent with what was used in like the 18th century, uh, maybe 19th century um, was, was probably what was done. Um, it's, it's an incredible artifact though. I've, I've only been in its presence once. And I mean, when, when locked in its little special uh, bulletproof case and carried into an auditorium, you feel its energy before it walks through the doors the entire crowd goes quiet just before the doors open and in walks this charismatic man holding a little metal case handcuffed to his wrist. Um, and he, he opens it and, you know, brings out the skull. And um, I was lucky enough uh, during this event to uh, get up close and personal for a very brief moment because, you know, all hundred or so people in the room wanted to pass by the table and, and see the skull. And it's, it's really astounding. Um, yeah, but if you read... I I've watched the videos and the skull did talk to me from the videos. <laughs> and I was like, whoa. <laughs> um, but yeah, basically he said he wanted to meet me. And I said, well, I, I'll figure it out. I'll try to see if I could attend an event. And I had even planned to attend a conference last year where they were going to allow us to meditate in the room mm -hmm. with the skull and it got canceled because of COVID. Yeah. So I was so disappointed on that. Um, but I, I, that's amazing. I have two crystal skulls and I feel like I've totally underutilized them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have one that I got in Mexico that's pink obsidian. And she is definitely talkative, I think. Yeah. She she doesn't like, she wants to be involved in things. She doesn't, mm -hmm. she wants to see what I'm doing. Like sometimes I've brought her in on Zoom talks because she wants to be there. Um, right now she helps me with my distance Reiki. So I, I send... Um, Reiki to different people all over the world that need it, that requested it. So she sits right on my Reiki stack. <laughs> but um, I definitely think I'm going to take her out to Montana um, this summer. So or have you ever heard of the Montana megaliths, Nicholas? Um, not very much. I mean, I've, I've like seen the the sites in passing and headlines and things, but it's not something I've ever studied in depth. Yeah, you might want to go out there and check them out with your affinity with crystals and stones because um, there are dolmens and all sorts of neat, the, even 
rocks with with dragon faces on them, dragon mm. eyes. I'm really excited to see those. So I went a couple of years ago, um, and I'm going again this summer. I'm going to do some major work out there, if you know what I mean. Um, yeah. That all it sits on grid lines. Um, but so, have you written a book on crystal skulls? I think you have. I haven't written a book exclusively on crystal skulls. No, they've, okay. they've made a couple of appearances in some of my other books. My, my very first book, which is called the seven archetypal stones, their spiritual powers and teachings. Um, chapter six is devoted to quartz. And so every chapter of the book kind of examines the archetypal sort of universal roles that crystal, a, a specific stone has, has taken across time and culture. And so one of the archetypes we see coming up time and time again with quartz is not just the crystalline skull, but the crystalline self. So whether that is, uh, you know, the crystal skulls we see in cultures all around the world, it's not just Central and South America. There are skulls that have been found throughout Asia. Um, there are a couple rumored to have been found in Africa. We've got at least one that comes from Europe that is at least a couple centuries old, if not older. So we'll say a little ahead of the craze. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, other depictions of, of the self in crystalline form and so in in the context of that book you know the the seven stones that kind of make up that journey are almost like teachers of the alchemical process starting with the the uh, rendering of things apart the breaking of things down and putting them back together into their most luminous and rarefied form so i view that alchemical work in very say metaphoric and symbolic language as a means of self-mastery and inner transformation, which is not to say that I don't believe in the outer uh, alchemy of, of transforming base metals into gold. I just haven't mastered that myself. But when it comes to the work of the skulls in that, it really reminds us that we have to internalize all of the crystalline work we're doing. It's not just about having the tool on the outside. It's recognizing that you are the tool and you are inherently crystalline. I think mm -hmm. part of the reason uh, cultures around the globe carve the likeness of skulls into quartz and other minerals and other rocks um, is because there is a, a seed there that says it's already in you. And unless you are trained in the arts of forensic anthropology or something comparable, a skull is a skull. It is really hard to tell what the lived experience of the person was that the skull belonged to. If you don't have very rigorous training, it's hard to know if they were male or female. It's hard to know what their diet was, what their age was, what their lifestyle was like, whether they had kids and married, whether they lived as a hermit on a mountain. It's it's kind of everybody and nobody at the same time when you look at a skull. It's, it's vaguely impersonal, but it's still kind of deeply personal because it could even be you. So when we see the image of the skull carved in quartz, it's taking that sort of universal image of humankind and, and rendering it really, in a powerful way, luminous, eternal, transformed. The skull is... Is, is bone, which is you know, some of the hardest part of us, but it still breaks down. It's a symbol of our own undoing. If you can see someone's skull, they're probably not in a, a, a good and healthy position right now, right? Mm -hmm. um, so if you take that symbol of our own mortality, our own ephemeral nature, and you 
carve it into something that is eternal, something that can stand the erosive nature of time, then you're not pointing to the physical being. It's not the sort of physical things we have in common, but the eternal, supernal, metaphysical things we have in common. The, the crystal skull becomes a symbol for the common human experience of incarnating, of excarnating, of being these luminous beings who forget what we really are and come into this dense world. And so I believe the skull is not just a symbol, but a roadmap and a tool to help us reclaim our own luminous nature, to reclaim the divinity that is within us and to embody that in a very visceral way every moment of every day. That's so beautiful. <clears throat> Thank you. So what are your, some of your favorite crystal books or authors? Could you share that with us? Um, I would say some of my most influential crystal books that I've read have been written by Jane Ann Dow, um, who sadly her, her one and only book called Crystal Journey um, only had one printing in English. Uh, it's still in print in Japanese, and I think it might still be in print in either German or, or Spanish. Um, <clears throat> but she was a brilliant woman. Her, her background was uh, thanatology, the study of death and dying. So on a personal level, she actually had a really deep relationship with Crystal Skulls, although she doesn't talk about that in the book. Um, but her book is called Crystal Journey, and it's, it's really a remarkable book, deeply psychological, um, entirely built on personal experience and counseling terminally and critically ill clients. Like she really, she really knew her stuff. And we corresponded for several years before she passed away back when I was in college and working at the museum. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was, it was fabulous getting to know her that way. Katrina Raphael wrote this incredible book. She, well, this incredible trilogy of books in the eighties and early nineties, um, crystal enlightenment, crystal healing and the crystal and transmission. Uh, maybe like 20 years, 25 years later, she came out with a fourth book. Um, called Crystalline Illumination, but her crystal trilogy is what began the modern crystal healing movement as we know it, you know, full of layouts and the laying on of stones on the body. And she, she really inadvertently um, gave birth to this whole system of crystals that we know today. And so many other works on crystals use terms that she coined. And uh, a lot of people don't even realize that because they've become a kind of common currency of the crystal world today. So mm -hmm. um, her books are really wonderful. Um, also an, another, another author that has been like really pivotal to my own work is uh, Michael Ginger. He is a, he was a German author. He passed away a few years ago. I want to say maybe about 2015. Um, <clears throat> brilliant man. He was a geologist first and foremost, and he started to see patterns in how different kinds of people were attracted to different kinds of rocks. And because he had the geology background and understood composition and structure and formation process, he started to look for the energetic patterns and then worked with a group of peers and colleagues and students and clients to develop a, an approach to crystal healing that relied on the science of minerals and rocks. And um, his first book is called uh, Crystal Healing, Crystal Power, Crystal Power, Crystal Healing. Crystal Power, Crystal Healing. I've actually got it beside me now for inspiration. Um, and he's, he's authored a heck of a lot of other books. Um, and uh, bringing that science to what he does was amazing for me because right at the time I started doing that for myself, 
I saw that someone else had done this. And, you know, over the years, I found other approaches, some more, um, we'll say, intuitive and inspired and some more rigorous and scientific. But his, his was really groundbreaking for me. So um, those are some of my favorites. But, you know, over the years, I've, I've been really lucky to get to know other crystal authors like Sue and Simon Lilly. Sue has become a really dear friend, a mentor to me in the realm of flower essences as well. Mm -hmm. their, their books are wonderful. Judy Hall, um, you know, Judy Hall changed the crystal book industry by publishing the crystal bible before that there was no a to z dictionary of stones that was fully illustrated you could find dictionaries of crystals that were not illustrated or maybe had a handful of pictures as a color insert um, but that really changed the name of the game without that book you wouldn't have um, other encyclopedias you wouldn't have crystal basics my my own encyclopedia that came out last year you would have the book of stones by robert simmons and um, Samaya K. Astor, formerly known as Naisha Azian. Um, Naisha is also a really dear friend, mentor. Um, her, her works were incredible. I, I remember reading the, the guidebook for her crystal ally cards and seeing her understanding of the science behind crystals, explaining their entry, their, their energy by kind of reading between the lines. And when she finally put out the new edition uh, a couple of years ago, um, she's really explicit about that correlation between composition and structure and and the energy. So, uh, gosh, I could talk crystal books yeah. all day. That's that's like the perfect intersection of my two loves: rocks and books. So, um, yeah, there there's so many great ones, and I always get excited when I come across something new and weird. Um, I love the vintage, out of print, hard to find kinds of books, but um, there there have been some really fun ones that have come out in recent years too. So I love finding something that is kind of a breath of fresh air. Um, my, my next big read in the world of crystals is actually an academic book called Seeking Transparency. And it's a look at how uh, quartz crystal has played a symbolic and cultural role across the medieval Mediterranean. So that'll obviously go into a lot of spiritual and symbolic kind of things, but um, I'm still waiting for my copy to arrive. So I haven't gotten a chance to dive in just yet, but even academics are turning their eyes towards uh, the lapidary field more and more. And it's, it's a really exciting time to be part of the crystal movement. Yeah. Um, have you looked into Atlantis and how Atlanteans used crystals or do you have any knowledge about that? I've certainly done a lot of reading on it. I'm at a point in my life where I, I view things like Atlantis and Memoria more in the realm of metaphor than, than fact, only because we we have no proof either way. And mm -hmm. um, there's there's lots of people who who invent evidence out of a lot of things that may or may not be related. And at, at the end of the day, I, I think there is a difference between poetic fact or poetic truth and factual truth. And it is perfectly okay to to derive a meaningful experience from something for which there is no physical proof of. So I'm not going to um, shame anyone for their unverified personal gnosis or anything along those lines. Um, but, you know, there's so many conflicting stories of how Atlantis uh, existed and emerged and ended. Uh, certainly the, the most famous iteration of the story of, of crystals in Atlantis was uh, based on the channelings of um, Edgar Cayce, mm -hmm. America's sleeping prophet. And he talked about these fire stones that were ultimately the undoing of of the civilization there and it was the misuse of this technology that that ended atlantis and other people have come back and reinterpreted that 
as a, a form of crystal technology and source of their energy. But every, every retelling changes the story slightly. Every person's channeled experience is a little bit different because we all have to filter it through our, our, our personal filters. Right. So, um, you know, I'm no expert in Atlantis, but um, there was a point in my life when the myths of Atlantis and Memoria were a really big part of my personal practice with crystals. Mm-hmm. And the seed is still there. It still has meaning and value for me on a metaphorical level, but um, I'm I'm not in a place where I'm trying to figure out if they were really there because it doesn't matter. the The myth speaks volumes. The reason cultures in the world have similar stories to tell is because it speaks to something about the universal human experience. And if right. we can learn something from that and adapt and change, then we're on the right track. So I I love seeing the stories continue to grow and evolve. Yeah. Have you heard about the Giza crystals? I have not. No, you haven't. So Starseed Academy, the podcast that you were interviewed on years ago, um, Lavendar and Ariel, they have these crystals called the Giza crystals. And in 1983, Lavendar had taken it to the pyramids and left them there overnight, at least overnight. And there are these tiny little shards. Um, they're supposed to be millions of times more powerful than a regular quartz. So, yeah, you might be, I'll show you after the show because <laughs> I have some, but they're really interesting. Um, well, Nicholas, I wanted to thank you for coming on the show. So interesting. I could talk about this all day <laughs> long. <laughs> So why don't you tell us some of the the books that you've written and what you have coming out and what do we have looking forward to coming from from you? Well, sure. Well, first and foremost, thank you for having me on the show. It's been a pleasure to chat. Um, My most recent work, certainly a bestseller at the moment, is called Crystal Basics, um, The Energetic Healing and Spiritual Power of 200 Gemstones. But it's way more than just a crystal dictionary. It's a complete hands-on working guide for what to do with crystals, from choosing them, from collecting them, to cleansing, charging, programming, making grids and elixirs and layouts and and doing other uh, spiritual work with crystals, as well as a really thorough guide to decoding how and why crystal energy works. So um, it'll walk you through the composition, the structure, the formation process. So if you come up with a a, a mineral that's not in any of your books, maybe, um, you know, maybe something like cetawavalite or metahewatite or some other ite that's really hard to pronounce, we won't try. Um, (laughs) You you can type that, that mineral name into Google and, you know, a mineral database or even Wikipedia will tell you what ingredients it's made from, what, what are the, the chemical elements of which it's comprised. Um, what crystal structure does it have? What class does it belong to? And, and how it was formed most likely um, through igneous sedimentary metamorphic activity. And then you can also learn things about hardness and um, uh, other, other physical, chemical, and optical properties that all give you clues to how the energy works. So the book breaks it down for you. Chapter two is all about how to take that information and discover what energy a crystal is likely to have and it'll walk you through that process so more than just a hands-on guide to 200 crystals it's a a way uh, an approach to working and getting to know crystals of any variety so um that's that's certainly um 
the one that's that's leading the pack right now in sales. But I've got mm-hmm. a few other books on crystals. Uh, I mentioned the Seven Archetypal Stones, uh, Crystals for Karmic Healing, also has a, a short entry on crystal skulls and a forward written by Judy Hall, the crystal maven herself. Um, Crystal Healing for the Heart and Stones of the Goddess. I have one book on Reiki on shelves as well called Foundations of Reiki Rioho. And it's a manual for the first and second degree of the system of Reiki. And it's written in a way to kind of um, bridge all different traditions and lineages. Although my practice leans very traditional and Japanese-centric today, I didn't always learn Reiki that way. And I know not everyone's practice looks like that. So it's, it's written in a way to kind of bring us all together. Um, and then next year, my next book, dropping is called flower essences from the witch's garden spring or summer release in 2022 wow you are busy <laughs> i am i am and You're there's like more the on the Stephen way king of uh crystal writing <laughs> and like you must be writing all the time <laughs> I certainly try. I try to devote at least a little bit of time every day to my craft. I, I work a full-time job. I also teach very rigorously. And then I, I do this kind of thing. I get to have these really cool conversations to put out there. So um, being an author is like being, it's like having four full-time jobs at once. And I, I love it so much. I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. Wow. That's so amazing. Well, thank you again, Nicholas, for coming on the show. Um, if you want to contact Nicholas, I'm going to have all of his information in the show notes. And if you ever want to come back on and I have another story to share, please let me know. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. If you have a weird experience to share, please email me at contactstargazingangel at gmail.com. Check out our website on tinakinneyclark.com. Also, we're on Facebook and like us on Facebook and share your favorite episodes with your friends and family. I look forward to hearing about your weirdest experience.